All right, I want to welcome on my next guest. We got a very special guest. I want to welcome on legendary NFL Super Bowl champion coach and hopefully soon Hall of Fame coach, Dick Vermeil. Dick, how's everything going for you? I'm doing fine, thank you. Yeah, everything's great. Appreciate it. I'm glad to hear it. So I want to, I want to ask you a little bit uh, about your early career. How did you get into coaching? Well, I uh, decided as senior year in high school at Calistoga there in the Napa Valley that's been burning up recently with forest fires. Uh, because of my high school football coach, I, I, I admired him so much that I, I thought I'd like to be like him and be a high school football coach. So I went to junior college and then on San Jose State and then from there into high school coaching. And then every time someone offered me a better job, I took it. So how did, how did you end up at UCLA? Well, uh, I was there originally as an assistant in 1970. And when I was at Stanford University coaching against UCLA, my offseason assignment was to study UCLA personnel and schemes and report to the head coach, John Ralston. And I was so impressed in the four years that I studied them that I let it be known to a UCLA assistant, someday I'd like to work for Coach Protro. And I just, I don't know how he wins as many games with, with the, the level of personnel he had on his roster. And uh, Prothro evidently got that statement and uh, came to me when I was special teams coach then at the Rams in 1969 and offered me the opportunity to be his offensive coordinator at UCLA. So I went and I coordinated his offense for a year. And then by gosh, uh, the, the Rams fired George Allen, who was my boss in 69 and hired Tommy Prothrow. So I went back to the Rams as the offensive coordinator. And uh, I was there until they, uh, they fired coach Proto, which I stayed with Chuck Knox. And then UCLA uh, called me back to replace Pepper Rogers, who was leaving to go back to Georgia tech. And all of a sudden I'm the head coach of UCLA. <laughs> I've actually interviewed two of your former players from UCLA. I interviewed uh, Rick Walker and Randy Cross. Oh yeah, yes, yeah. good people. Absolutely. So, um, so af so after UCLA, what was it like? How, how did you end up with Philly? Well, you know, we played Ohio State in the Rose Bowl, January first, nineteen seventy six, and we had played them in the regular season, and they beat us badly, like forty one to twenty three or something like that, and. <clears throat> The owner of the Philadelphia Eagles and general, general manager were watching the game together in Philadelphia. And after the ball game, from what I understand, general manager Jim Murray and uh, Leonard Toast, the owner, looked at each other and said, we're going to go out and hire that guy. <laughs> so they got on an airplane on Monday, TWA flight, and came out and set up at a Beverly Hills hotel and, and started talking to me about becoming the head coach. I first said no on a Monday evening or whatever it was. And then by Thursday, I said, okay. So I, I came to Philadelphia, but it was all stimulated by my team's performance and upsetting the number one team in the country in Woody Hayes. Interesting. And so I, so I know the Philadelphia fan base is very unique, very eccentric. Uh, the, the fan base is very unique, very eccentric personalities. Is it even harder when you're the coach of the team? Well, you know, when I worked at UCLA as the head coach, uh, John Wooden told me, he says, coach, as a, as a coach, young or old veteran coach, you're better off, especially during the season, not reading what is written about you, because what is written about you that it's all good is probably not all true. And what is written about you that's bad is probably not all true. So you don't need the distraction, he says, so don't get involved with that. And he said, don't listen to the radio talk shows. It'll just be a distraction. 
So I, I developed that discipline and I very seldom ever read an article during the season. And I developed the habit of not reading articles with my name in it. To this day, I really don't like to. And it was all habits developing as John Wooden's advice, you know, and I said, yeah, it worked real good for him. Why not me? Yeah. So that's why I did. So I knew people were mad at me and upset and, and would boo and all that kind of stuff. But uh, I I read it as an uh, intense uh, uh, liking for the Eagles and really caring about them and, uh, and disappointment rather than uh, disrespect uh, for me. And so I lived through those first tough years. And then when we started becoming good, it goes the opposite, of course, you know, two extremes to emotion in Philadelphia. You win, you're a hero, you yeah. lose, you're a rat. Yeah. You know? yeah. So the question, how, how did you find Vince Papali? Oh, we had an open field uh, tryout. Uh, but we know we didn't have any first, second or third round draft choice my first year or second year or my third year. So I figured I would just open the camp up in 1976, my first year, and allow people that thought they could play or played college ball, didn't get drafted or anybody to come and just try out. So we had a Saturday open tryout. We had about 115, 120 people show up, all sizes, all shapes, all races. They all showed up. And we signed, I think, two guys out, if I remember right. Number one was Vince Papali. We signed Vince because, first off, he ran the fastest 40 time. I think it was like four, five, wow. four, six on grass in those days uh, and with a stopwatch, not a digital watch. And he was impressive as an athlete. So we signed him as a free agent. Never did we expect him to make it. But once we got him on the field and watched him and then allowed him to play in preseason games, remember those years, you only played 14 games, but you had six preseason games. Wow. And we had we started our training camp a week earlier than everybody else as well. And we went double days every day. So he had a lot of time to work with young players. And it was pretty obvious that he could play. He was inexperienced. He was raw. Uh, great passion to play. Very tough. And all we had to do was train some of those skills and, and discipline into football techniques because he didn't play college football. They did St. Joe did not have a football team. So that's how we signed him. And then he went on to make the team. Do you think more teams should maybe do more open tryouts nowadays? Cause all these, all these teams are always complaining like their position groups aren't that strong. Do you think that maybe in a non pandemic year, but do you think that could give open the opportunity for more guys like him to maybe make the NFL? Well, I'm all for that. I'm all for giving a young kids opportunities. I've had tremendous luck in my coaching career, all 15 years as a head coach, of signing kids that made the team that no one expected them to. You know, I've had them start and play well. I've had, like, London Fletcher set a record, I think, for linebacker starting 16 years and never missed a game. Okay, <laughs> here's a free agent. Today, it would be hard for him to get that kind of an opportunity. In those days, there were no limit on the number of people you could bring to training camp. You could bring as many as you wanted. Now there were limits at cut down times, but prior to that, you could bring as many guys as you wanted to. And I would always load up with free agents. And every single year I found somebody that could play. That's awesome. And that was, uh, it was fun because I always considered myself a free agent. You know, uh, Herman Edwards was a free agent. Okay. <laughs> and he, now he's the head coach at Arizona state and doing well. But anyway, it was very good to me. It's tougher to do that today yeah. because all practice sessions are limited. The number are limited. The time you can spend on the field is limited. The number of times you can wear shoulder pads and have contact is limited. The number of double days is limited. And it's all, you know, designed to help 
uh, prevent injuries and player safety, which is good, but it's also really limits your uh, time to discover young uh, free agent players. Yeah. When they were filming Invincible, did they ask you to come by and kind of let's see things over? No. Interesting. No. I, I read the script. I called the uh, producer, director, people uh, when I finished reading it and said, you know, guys, there's a lot of things in this script that are not true. And their response to me, I will never forget it. Says, Coach, we're not doing a documentary. We're telling a story. And the story was true. The story was true. So they did it. You know, and the movie, I think, went way beyond expectations. From yeah. what I was told, the movie has grossed over $800 million. And they wow. still sell DVDs of the movie. Wow. And, of course, it made Vince. Vince didn't make any money in the movie. But he, he was happens to be very good with a microphone and he's yeah. a great speaker. And he's traveled all over the world speaking. And he still does. Yeah. People like the story. I, I run into people all the time say they gave their grandson a birthday present. It was a DVD of The Invincible because they like the story, you know, and it's wholesome. It's all the whole family can watch it. And uh, but it's not all true. But it, the story is true. Have you ever met Mark Wahlberg? Yes. I met him at the premiere. It's the only time I've ever seen the movie. I really? Back yet. I'm going back to saying I don't like to read anything written about me or where I am on screen or anything like that. But I saw it. I, I met him at the, the post uh, preview party in New York. Nice guy. He and Vince are, Vince are still good friends. Oh, cool. I never knew that. How, how did you like the depiction of you in the movie? I thought they were pretty good. You know, <laughs> they made one mistake on the airplane trip. I remember they showed him right and left handed and I'm right handed. But uh, and my oldest son, our oldest son, Rick Vermeil, who's actually gets a whole headshot and toward the end of the movie in a locker room scene, uh, was there every day they filmed it. And he would come home and he'd say, Dad, they nailed you. They got you down pretty quick. <laughs> That's awesome. So I'd have to say that it, it, they did a good job. Yeah. And they cleaned a, up the language, I'll tell you that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then so speaking of Herm Edwards, do you, what, do you, what do you remember about the miracle of the Meadowlands? Only that it happened. You know, I've been asking that question so every year. The second game of the season <laughs> against the Giants, we go through these same interviews as if it happened last weekend. You know, it's amazing how that play has carried over all these years. 1978. Okay, that's a long time ago. Anyway, uh, you know, uh, I wasn't even looking initially. And I just looked up and I saw Herman uh, pick up the ball and run it in. I was taking my headset off. And then I saw what happened and the players rushed on. And, and then that just, you know, it's, it's a non, it's, uh, you don't believe it happened. Okay. You just don't believe it happened, but it did. So that's why they call it a miracle. But that, and I also remember, <clears throat> excuse me, feeling sorry for the other coaching staff. I said, oh my God, would I hate to be on the other side. <laughs> and what happens the next day, some coaches got fired, including the head coach. Wow. That's, I have a question. Why did you retire in 83? Because, you know, I, I, I coined the term, I'm burned out. Uh, you know, I'm a, was at, especially at that age, uh, I am what I am, way too emotional, way too intense, uh, way too driven, uh, maybe on the compulsive side. And uh, I uh, allowed my passion for the game to become an obsession. And I got so I couldn't handle the loss. I would spend three days after the loss thinking how I should have won and what I should have done as head coach to win it. And that would interfere with taking three days away, preparing for the next game. So I, I knew I needed a break and my wife convinced me I needed it. 
And so I decided to walk away. I had a couple of years left on my contract. I decided to walk away. And then when I did walk away, uh, CBS gave me a job broadcasting. And I went from making $75,000 a year to $150,000 a year working 16 weekends. I said, this is stealing for a living. Yeah, that's, so I did that and I enjoyed it. It kept me close to the game. And of the 14 years I was out, I had 13 of those years, different teams approached me about going back. Really? And I thought it about seriously a few times, once with the Atlanta Falcons. Uh, Tampa Bay offered me the finest job I've ever been offered, and I, I, I didn't go. And uh, then when the Rams called uh, later on, it, I decided, you know, if I turn this opportunity down uh, at that age, I'll never get another opportunity. So I went back and I'm so appreciative of John Shaw, Georgia Frontier and Jay Zygmunt of the Ram organization that brought me back and it got me gone. You know, I almost came back with Philadelphia and that I got excited about that. And that showed me that it still was in me and deep down inside, I wanted to try it again. So uh, I'm uh, appreciative of both the opportunity that I almost got with the Eagles and then the opportunity the Rams gave me to go back. So, yeah, you know, not, not many owners would do that. Yeah. In your second stint, did you try to do anything so you wouldn't be as kind of um, after games be still thinking about the? Oh yeah. Yeah. First off, I'd been out of it 14 years, even though I'd been in the booth and I'd watched, I'd been on the field with all the coaches, both pro and college. I'd been in meeting rooms. I'd been in quarterback meetings, head coaches meetings, staff meetings. I, uh, I knew that I couldn't be the coach that I was in terms. I ran my own offense. I was my offensive coordinator, called my own plays. I was in charge of personnel. You know, I had all those responsibilities and I did a better job of delegating it to people that hadn't left coaching. They were in it. And, uh, they all did a great job for me. My first couple of years back, we were the oldest coaching staff in football. Everybody had tons of experience. You know, Bud Carson coaching the defense, Jerry Rome running the offense, and me running the organization. And I spent more time in the entire organization, from the receptionist in the building to the owner, to the president, the general manager, to every department. I was involved in everything and trying to regenerate a new way to think in a building because they'd lost more games in the 90s than any other team in football. That's hard to do. You got to try to lose too many games. Yeah. And we got them going through hard work and people uh, pulling together. The great term to use today is culture. Yeah. Well, we, we developed an unbelievable culture that went beyond culture. It went to a community. People love coming to work and they handle the losing properly. And, and all of a sudden we knew we we're a good football team. I bring Mike March in to coordinate the offense and Al Saunders and John Matsko and these guys to come in my third year there and uh, uh, got, you know, we were ready. Then we lose our starting quarterback in Trent Green. Yeah. Lo and behold, you know, Hall of Fame career was written in, in, you know, in Kurt Warner. So all all good fortune. Yeah. Developed by good people. Yeah. And so speaking of Kurt Warner, do you remember where you were the first time you heard this guy's name? Like, hey, we just signed this guy you've never heard of. Yeah. Yeah. One of my, my John Becker and Charlie Army, the guys in my personnel department, came in and said a, a coach from California had called and asked us to work out Kurt Warner, an arena league player, because he was coaching the German team, NFL Europe. And, you know, if a team signed a player, we could then send him to a specific team uh, in the NFL Europe if we wanted to. And having a relationship with the fellow that wanted us to sign him, I said, yeah, let's bring him in. We worked him out. 
Kurt will tell you himself, it wasn't spectacular, but I liked it. And I liked him and I love giving free agent kids opportunities. Yeah. And we needed another quarterback, so we brought him to camp. And he did well. Yeah. He made the team as a third quarterback. He beat out the guy that was the third quarterback the year before. The next year we made him our backup quarterback who became our starting quarterback. Yeah. So, you know, it, it, there's a lot of luck involved. Yeah. And there's also a, a, a philosophy that was involved uh, that in, like I've said already, I love giving young kids opportunities to try to make a football yeah. game. We did not have a limit on the roster size and those kinds of things at that time. So anyway, here he is in the hall of fame. Yeah. Did you ever meet his boss at the grocery store? Like, Hey, sorry. Like we needed him. We needed him. No, I did not. But (laughs) that's a true story. In fact, I understand they're doing a movie about it now. Really? I'm watching that. So yeah, yeah, that's, that's why. And then, so when, when Trent green went down in 99, did you think the season was a wash or what what was your, your thought process? No, I, I knew we were a good football team. I'd been on the football field enough, and I'd seen enough other good pro football teams in training camp and practice as a broadcaster, and I knew we were a good football team. And I, I thought we could play well, as I said, in the, you know, which was played every year, you see, and I, I made that comment, you know, we will go with Kurt Warner and we will play well. First off, I sincerely believed it. And number two, I didn't want to give my team an excuse for losing. And, uh, you know, to this day, the first five games he played in is an all-time record for a starting quarterback in his first year. I mean, he was lights out. You got to give him a lot of credit. You got to give Mike March and the rest of my OG, OC, my offensive coordinator and staff, a lot of credit. Did an unbelievable job. Yeah, that's incredible. How, how did the offense just explode? Well, talent, talent. You know, I just, just this weekend, I finished a letter of recommendation. Uh, for Torrey Holt to go in the NFL Hall of Fame. You know, he's been in the finals the last couple of years. Isaac Bruce has already been in. Orlando Pace, the left tackle's already in. Kurt Warner's already in. Marshall Falk's already in. When you have five guys on one side of the line of scrimmage in the NFL Hall of Fame, you're going to have a good offense if you don't screw it up. And fortunately, I had great coaches. And we had spent, invested two years prior to that third year of building a football attitude. And, I mean, you talk about work. These guys – really worked way beyond what they do today. And it, we developed some players, you know, the left guard center and right guard came into the NFL as college free agents. Okay. So we were able to develop people. And I had Jim Hannafin coaching the offensive line with John Matsko. People really teaching kids how to play. So, uh, it, you know, and John Bunning and, and these kind of guys coaching on defense, uh, Peter Junta, who was co-coordinator after, after Bud Carson retired, you know, Frank Gans, senior coaching the special teams. Our special teams were beyond special. You know, they were outstanding and uh, hard to beat a team that's that well prepared. Yeah. What was going into that playoff run? What was that? What was that like? Did you have a feeling that like you couldn't be beat or what was your mindset? I didn't think anybody could beat us. I didn't think anybody could beat us once we got going. I told the team after we beat uh, 49ers badly in St. Louis the first time in 17 games. They were 0-17, okay? And after we beat them, I told them on Monday morning, I said, guys, we're really lucky. There, there's only one team in the National Football League that can beat this team in this mini room, and they're all here in this room. If we keep <laughs> working like we're working, a little luck injury-wise, and uh, and, and uh, don't get fat-headed and keep our mouths shut and, and, and go through the grind, we'll win it all. And they did it. They, you know, I, I've never gone into games more confident. We have too much talent. Interesting. It's, it's 
Interesting. And so going into that Super Bowl, at what point during the game did you know it's over? I didn't. <laughs> I went into the game very, very confident. I was actually surprised it was that close. You know, we screwed up around the red zone some. We fumbled a snap on field goal. These kinds, they dropped a touchdown pass, those kind of things. And that was a good football team. You know, they, they were a good football yeah. team. And then they wore us down in the second half. We scored too fast and we scored, you know, and uh, in the second half. And then we had to come, you know, they were going to, anyway. <laughs> yeah, we were fortunate to win it. We yeah. really were. When you come down to the last play of the game on the goal line, and Mike Jones stops him inches away from beating you or tying you. And from what I understand, uh, they said that if they had scored, they were going to go for two. We might have lost it. So that's how that's how Super Bowl games should be played, yeah. the best against the best. And, uh, no, we're, I'm very fortunate, very fortunate. Well, what was that like for you after a, a long hiatus broadcasting, already spending a lot of years in Philly, and then to finally get there and be a Super Bowl champ? Well, it was very humbling. You know, your you, your your mind moves. At least mine does moves to a very grateful attitude. Yeah, grateful for all the things that happened, and all the people that made it happen. It surely wasn't all about me. I'd like to believe I was a catalyst. Yeah. I put it together properly. I disciplined it properly. Organized it properly. Uh, and motivated it properly. Hired properly. Uh, but there were a lot of people involved, and uh, you know, it it happens every once in a while. And the NFL seemed just fall together. And uh, that's what happened. It was a reflection of everybody's contribution. And I, I being the head coach and having that title, you know, uh, uh, I, I'm the, I get the credit, but it's really, I'm the end product of so many guys doing great work. Well, why did you step away? Because I thought to, uh, it would be a wonderful way to end a career. Yeah. I knew head coaches that had great careers that all were forced out at the end. <laughs> You know, hey, even Tom Landry, who was my idol, okay, uh, they get fired. That happens today, you know. Yeah. Uh, Pete, they just fired a coach that took a team to a Super Bowl, you know. Just, you know, it happens. And I fe felt I could go out on top like a world champion. And I also had family back here and grandchildren, you know, 11 grandchildren. And uh, it, uh, to go out a world champion and then be home and be able to share that experience and time with them was valuable and then when i got home it didn't take long before i actually when they handed out the super bowl rings in may i recognized i made a mistake and then carl peterson came after me who i had coached with at ucla i brought him to philadelphia with me and he'd been at the chiefs for a long time he talked me into going back and it was one of the best decisions i ever made great city to work in yeah. great ownership and i have a lot of great friends there including great players yeah um, did the, did the Rams try to convince you to stay? Pardon? Did the, did the Rams try to convince you to stay? Yes. Oh yeah. They yeah. They uh, they yeah. They, they gave me a two million dollar bonus when I left, five hundred thousand a year for four years. I had to give it back when I went back into coaching. But and then I still think that was wrong. But I you know I don't carry grudges, and that was just how Tagliabama ruled on the whole process. We had to give up a second round choice and the money they had given me. But uh, I was willing to do that because I knew I made a mistake and I want to go back and coach again. Yeah. And then so going to the Chiefs, that your roster was was loaded with you had Willie Rove, you had Trent Green, you had Priest Holmes, Tony Gonzalez. What what was coaching that team like? Oh, I loved the I loved the experience of coaching the Chiefs. Willie Rove was not there until our third year. You know, Priest Holmes, we signed as a free agent and brought him there out of Baltimore. Remember, he was an undrafted yeah. player that had a little success at Baltimore Ravens. We brought him with us and 
it took, uh, I never did get the defense built uh, like it should have been to equivalent, be equivalent of the offense. If you took all five of the years we were in Kansas City and put all their numbers together, we we're the number one offense in the NFL. Okay, so we're proud of that. Al Saunders and offensive staff did a great job. Mike Solari, all those guys did a, a great job. James Saxon, they all did, but we never had enough defensive personnel to, to win it all. You know, we got in the playoffs, went 13 and three, went nine and oh, start out in 03, and uh, we just couldn't get it done. We ended up with a matchup with Peyton Manning. We had all the odds in our favor playing at home in Kansas City, playoff game, a week off. Uh, all the good things, but we just couldn't outscore Peyton Manning. It's still the only playoff game in the history of the, of the league that no team punted. Neither team punted. Interesting, I didn't know that. No. And, you know, we had a great, probably, in my opinion, the finest offensive line ever assembled when yeah. they were all healthy playing. Boy, they, they were really good. Yeah. Two offensive guards. You know, we have two of them, are, three of them are in the Hall of Fame. Left tackle, Willie Rofe. Right guard, Will Shields. Tight end, Tony Gonzalez. The left guard. Brian Waters is a Hall of Fame player. Yeah, I mean, he didn't have the reputation because he was a college free agent, but he's a Hall of Fame. He's better than a lot of guards that are in the Hall of Fame already. Yeah. So we were, and then we had Casey Wigman at center, who set a record for the most consecutive snaps uh, of an offensive player. You know, so we had talent. Trent Green did a beautiful job, uh, but we didn't have enough depth on the defense to, yeah. to get it done. How do you, how do you think Andy Reid's done so far? Beyond. Uh, Beyond good, great. He's a great football coach. Yeah. And he, he runs the entire thing. He hired his own general manager and personnel directors and everything else. And he's on top of everything. They have a, they created a winning culture, a winning decision team. Uh, and he's a great football coach. Just a great football coach. And uh, he's a, he's one of the best among the best, okay? Yeah. And uh, very deserving of the success. Absolutely. What, what, are you, what, are, what are your thoughts on Mahomes, even though we're only seen – what three years of them just so far well, he's probably going to go down as the best that ever played wow yeah he stays healthy he's yeah. he's an amazing player he has a great attitude uh i've been in their meeting rooms i've sat in the quarterback meeting with him and listened to him talk to the coordinator and the head coach and uh he's on top of the game both mentally and physically and i don't think he'll get a big attitude or, or a selfish attitude uh, i i think he's he's a phenom and then so um, then you when you finally retired with the Chiefs, did you know they're like, all right, this is I'm, I'm not coming back. Yeah, I knew yeah. that. Yeah, I was going on 70 years old. And, <laughs> you know, the kind of effort it takes yeah. as a leader. And I, I also I noticed things within my own makeup that uh, when I got tired, my, my mind didn't work as well. And, and you know, when the NFL is a head coach, you live in a constant state of being tired. Yeah. And by the end of the season, I was drained mentally, physically, and emotionally. And I just uh, felt I couldn't be as good a coach as these kids and Lamar Hunt, who's outstanding owner, one of the finest men I ever met in my lifetime. I couldn't be the caliber of coach they deserve. Interesting. In your opinion, who do you think is the most underrated head coach in the NFL right now? Oh, boy. Uh, that's really hard to, to pinpoint. Uh, I don't know if he's under. Rated the New Orleans coach you coached last night is awful good. Yeah, okay. he's awful good. <laughs> Sean, yeah, Sean Payton. Yeah, yeah. I'm extremely impressed with uh, 49ers new coach. You know, Shanahan. Shanahan. Yeah, I'm, you know these young guys. I, I think maybe uh, 
John Harbaugh as a yeah. total leader is is as good as you can have, you know, and uh, willing to do something different, willing to draft a quarterback that's a yeah. college quarterback and make him a pro quarterback yep. and then run a college offense. Yep. I uh, you know, you know, I came out of college. I was running option football in college <laughs> before these guys were born and then bitten up, but I was afraid to do it. Uh, I didn't have the confidence to be different. And so a hardball has to go into that category, you know, just outstanding. And I, I, I really like uh, Sean McVay. I, you know, I, he's, you know, I, I, I visit with him and I stay in touch with the Rams because the ownership and everything yeah. those same people and Stan Kroenke. And uh, I, I think he's one of the top three or four coaches almost right now in the league. And he's wow. about 34 years old. Yeah. Hey, my youngest child is 61. Okay, <laughs> 60, right? I mean, he's six. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's incredible. And I go, one last question for you. I don't know why we're still waiting, but for some reason we're still waiting. What would it be like for you to get enshrined in Canton? Well, you know, it would be a, a culmination, accumulation, uh, and a culmination of uh, contributions of so many wonderful people. Yeah, uh, you know, and and I, I don't have an "I deserve" attitude. Yeah. I never have. I've always believed you, you get what you deserve, yeah. and if you don't deserve it, you you don't get it. If I end up getting in, uh, which some people say I'm going to, great. It, but the credit's going to go to all the people. Are you yeah. hey. Talk about the players. You talk. You mentioned Willie Rofe, Hall of Famer. Will Shields, Hall of Famer. You know now Harold Carmichael, Builder, Hall of Famer. Kurt Warner, all these guys. I'm a. I'm the end product of their performances. I'd like to believe I made a, a nice contribution to helping them be what they have the ability to be. But uh, I don't walk around evaluating. Well, I should go in because he's in, or he shouldn't have got in. I have a better record than he did. Uh, I, I don't believe that. Think that if it happens. Great. But if it does happen, I'm going to give the credit to all the people that made it happen.
Plenty of time. 